0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Peter Spiegel. Today, I am pleased and honored to welcome Captain Paul Watson back to the show. If you have not been paying careful attention to Paul's activity since the Whale Wars series, well, a lot has transpired since then because, as you know, Paul personifies action. Paul Watson really needs no introduction, so I will just say he is the founder of the Captain Paul Watson Foundation, and he has a new book out titled... Hitman for Kindness Club, High Seas, Escapades, and Heroic Adventures of an Eco-Activist. Welcome, Captain Watson. Oh, thank you for having me. Paul, can you please give listeners a brief update on your new foundation just to get them oriented? And maybe a bit later, we'll go deeper into current activities and how people can get engaged.
1: I established the Captain Paul Watson Foundation a year ago after leaving the Sea Shepherd, which I had uh established in 77 and ran 45 years and uh since then we've uh got our first ship we're working on our second ship we had our first campaign to iceland to protect whales uh that was followed by a campaign to the faroe islands to intervene against uh, the killing of pilot whales and dolphins there and we're heading out in uh, november to uh, oppose uh, super trawlers uh, off the coast of france and ireland and then back to our uh, iceland again next june
0: referencing some of the interesting things in in the book you had a very uh, interesting uh, childhood. You were a pretty tough kid. And then as a young adult, you really traveled the world early. Why is that? What What is it about you that uh, provides that energy?
1: Well, I was raised in a very small uh, fishing village in eastern Canada. And uh, when I was 10 years old, I actually spent the summer swimming with a family of beavers. Got to know one little beaver quite well, every day swimming with him and then the next uh, summer when I went back, I found all the beavers had been killed by trappers that winter. Uh, that made me quite angry. So I I, I spent that winter uh, following the trap lines, releasing animals, and destroying the traps. And I guess I've been doing the same thing ever since. But, um, you know, I was the eldest of uh, of uh, six children uh, with a single mother, and she died when I was 13. And so uh, I ended up running off to sea when I was uh, 16, Uh, spent some time with the Norwegian, Swedish Merchant Marine, and then the Canadian Coast Guard. And then I was a co-founder of Greenpeace uh, in 72.
0: Yeah. How and why did you become interested in protecting harp seals from the yearly brutal slaughter?
1: Well, I was certainly aware of the, the killing of harp seals because uh, it was not very far from where I was living in New Brunswick that this uh, took place. And uh, as a, an eight-year-old, I actually was witness to a seal hunt off the uh, when the, the seals came ashore on the ice off of a, a place called Shedega, Shediac in, uh, in New Brunswick. And so I, uh, that was my first exposure to them. I saw them clubbing the seals, and uh, that stayed with me uh, ever. You know when I. In 1975, and then I organized the first campaign for Greenpeace to go and intervene against the, uh, the killing of seals, and then did that again. and And eventually, we ended up shutting down the market. It took until 2008. But uh, even though now today, the the actual quota the Canadian government sets is 400,000 seals. It's the largest quota for any marine mammal, but. They only killed uh, last year 27,000 because uh, there's no market. Uh, the hunt continues because of a $20 million subsidy by the Canadian government. It's basically just a glorified welfare program. But we did a lot of uh, successes over the years. First of all, we stopped the white coat hunt. That's where they killed the the newborns. And then uh, they, they went after them uh, five or six weeks. It's not a real big difference, but you know it was, it was a, an achievement. But... It took me, it took, well, it took us 30 years to uh, to really destroy the market for SEAL policy, but it was successful. But coming back uh, in 1976 uh, from the SEAL campaign, I stopped briefly in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and visited a woman named Ida Fleming, because she had set up a group called the Kindness Club when I was a child. And uh, she was the wife of the conservative uh, premier or the governor of New Brunswick. And uh, so I Dropped by to see her. She remembered who I was, and that's when she called me. After coming back from the SEAL campaign, she called me the hitman for the Kindness Club.
0: Thank you for explaining that title of the book, which you, which didn't make sense to me until I read the book. So, um, and I hope that we could talk a little bit about kindness uh, shortly. Um, but first, uh, talk about drift nets: uh, what they are, how harmful they are, because you've uh, destroyed a few in your days.
1: Well, there is no drift netting anymore, thankfully. After a number of campaigns, it was outlawed by the United Nations. Uh, But we did confiscate literally hundreds of miles of these things. They're almost like spider webs in the ocean. You know, they go down to 26 feet. They can be 100 miles long, one net. And uh, they just pretty much ensnare anything in their path. So that the bycatch, that is the unattended uh, target animals, are enormous. Everything from seabirds to unwanted uh, commercial fish and that. So the really, and then now today what we have to work, tend with is 100-mile-long long lines, 100-mile-long gill nets. We pulled one gill net up on the Southern Ocean. It was uh, two kilometers deep. took us 110 hours to pull it up because it was 72 kilometers long and weighed 70 tons. Yeah. And this is the kind of gear that we're using. Here's the problem, is as the fish populations become more diminished, they have to have more and more sophisticated technology, uh, a lot of industrialized me- uh, mechanized fishing operations to go after this, the fewer and fewer numbers. And that means they have to borrow incredible amounts of money from the banks in order to finance this technology, which means they have to catch even more fish to pay off the banks. It's pretty much the economics of extinction, really. I mean, today, a trawler that's a $200 million ship, and uh, that's just one ship. Yeah. And so you've got to catch an awful lot of fish to pay off the bank loans for those kind of uh, that kind of equipment.
0: Are the long lines and the gill nets still legal?:
1: Yes, they are. they uh, At any given moment, there's about sixty thousand miles of gill nets and long lines being sent. People talk
0: about overfishing versus fishing. You know, we are vegan-oriented, universal animal activists, so it's all bad for for our perspective.
1: Um, well, there is no such thing as sustainable fishing. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. All fishing is bad. Now, the, the fishing industry will say, well, you know, two billion people depend upon fish uh, for their livelihood. And that may be true. But that's not what these guys are going after. They're going after the, uh, the European, American, Australian markets, the Japanese markets. They're going after fish, which is being sold for a lot of money. One, uh, you know, one bluefin tuna now is worth $75,000, you know, in the Japanese market and uh, the the chilean sea bass which isn't from chile and it's not a bass is actually the antarctic toothfish uh but it's sold as chilean sea bass this is a fish that's caught in the southern oceans frozen brought back to port put on planes sent off to new york and paris and london to fancy restaurants this is not what you call sustainable fishing <laughs> uh so the it, but the fishing industry would like everybody to believe that it's a bunch of little fishermen going out there and catching a few fish when in fact it's giant super trawlers and incredibly um, mechanized industrialized operations. In 2015, when I addressed the um, COP21 conference in Paris, the climate change conference, I said, if we really want to address climate change, then we, ha- we need a moratorium of at least 75 to 100 years on all heavy gear commercial fishing operations. Because if we overfish the ocean, if, we, if the fish disappear, the ocean dies. And if the ocean dies, so do we. We don't live on this planet with a dead, o- dead ocean. Now, since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. These are small aquatic plants. But they provide up to 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe and suppress enormous amounts of CO2. And the reason that phytoplankton is being diminished is because we're destroying the seabirds and the whales and everything, and all those other species that provide the nutrients to the phytoplankton, the magnesium, the iron, and the uh, and the nitrogen that comes from the feces of these uh, animals. One blue whale every day dumps three tons of manure into the surface, heavily rich in the nutrients required by phytoplankton. So we've been messing around with ecological systems that we don't even really understand. And uh, and the, the reality is this. Phytoplankton, if that group of aquatic species disappears, the ocean dies. And li- and most life on the planet dies with it. It just It is a foundation not only... For controlling um, oxygen and sequestering CO two, it's also it's the foundation of all of the food food pyramid in the ocean. It feeds the krill, as the krill feeds the fish, and goes on all, all the way up to the top.
0: Recently, our good friend Bob Barker passed away. Do you have any uh, personal recollections you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Well, back in two thousand and nine, I got a, a woman got in touch with me. And uh, she said, uh, there's somebody who really wants to meet you and support you. And uh, I, I said, okay. And uh, I, I went to where she told me where to go to meet him. And I went there and it was uh, the office of Bob Barker's agent. And he was there, and, uh, which I was quite surprised. I was, I was and uh, he said, well, what do you need uh, to stop the Japanese railing for? I said, well, we could use another ship in a helicopter. And he said, well, well, $5 million to cover that. And I said, absolutely. And I said, oh, I'll throw another 250 for the helicopter. So <laughs> he, we got the ship and we named it Bob Barker. Actually, uh, he didn't want me to name the ship after him. Really? Uh, I had to convince him that, uh, you know, it would be inspiring to other people. And because of that, actually, Sam Simon, you know, the creator of The Simpsons, he came along later and he sponsored the ship, but because of the Bob Barker. So Bob really didn't want his name out there, uh, you know, that he had donated it, but then he realized or we convinced him that. It would be an advantage to him and i think he was really quite proud of it we had a model of the ship moved and given to him and um, so yeah it was it was good
0: we are speaking with captain paul watson founder of the captain paul watson foundation the book is hitman for kindness club high seas escapades and heroic adventures of an eco activist you're listening to animals today we'll be right back
2: Hi, this is Dr. Lori, and today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet, which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute.
1: For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org.
0: Welcome back. We're speaking with Captain Paul Watson. Okay, so let's uh, talk about whales, please. For those who don't know, can you please explain what the Southern Ocean campaigns were and why did you undertake them? In
1: 1986, a global moratorium came out on all commercial whaling. It was all to be shut down. But Japan, Norway, and Iceland uh, just ignored that ruling. They continued to kill whales, but... Japan did it under the guise of scientific research. They said, well, we're, this is not commercial, we're doing research. So we first went down in 2002, then 2005, and every year up until 2017. Our objective was to block their operations to prevent them from killing whales. And during that time, we stopped them from killing 6,500 whales. Uh, we, we cut their quotas by 30%, then 40%, and then finally, uh, to 90%. We cost some millions of dollars. And finally, it all got into court in the International Court of Justice in The Hague in 2014. And the International Court of Justice ruled that, look, this scientific, uh, research whaling is bogus and it's illegal. And Japan said, uh, okay, then we'll, uh, recognize that. And we stopped whaling in 2015. But then in twenty sixteen they started all over again and completely ignored the inter- the ruling of the International Court of Justice. So they're killing they were killing whales in an established um whale sanctuary, Southern Ocean whale sanctuary, in violation of the global moratorium. So we took a what I call aggressive nonviolent action. That is, we're going to block them, we're going to prevent them from refueling. And of course that ended up with a lot of um you know ships ramming each other and all sorts of problems at sea, but it, in the end, it was successful. In 2018, they left the Southern Ocean, and uh, they might go back, and we'll be prepared if they do. But right now, there is no whaling in international waters. Now, since 1977, we shut down pretty much 90 percent of the world's whaling operations. And uh, since I began, you know, countries like Australia and Chile and South Africa and, uh, and uh, uh, Peru and numerous other countries, Spain. All stopped uh, their whaling operations, restricting it now to only Norway, Iceland, uh, Japan, and Denmark. And uh, so we're going to continue. Right now, our focus is on stopping uh, the whaling operations in Finland, where they're targeting endangered fin whales illegally. And, uh, you know, in 1986, I stunk half their fleet, but they have still two ships left, and we're going to try and stop them next year.
0: If people want to get an update on that, your podcast, which you do with a chap named Charlie, describes that very nicely. I recommend people subscribe to that also. And in the book, the description, the writing of how Operation Zero Tolerance, which was one of these campaigns went down, was so compelling. I just want to congratulate you on just a thrilling read there. So, oh, thank you. Really wonder- wonderful. The television production that tracked these campaigns, or most of them. How
1: valuable was, was that to your efforts? I think that was extremely valuable. You know, in 2006, I approached all the networks I could and said, look, the biggest show on Discovery right now is a bunch of men going into a cold, remote area to catch crabs. And I said, uh, I'll give you men and women going to a colder, more remote area to save whales. It has to be more compelling than catching crabs every day. And, uh, and Animal Planet Discovery uh, and Animal Planet went for that idea, and we began the Whale War series, which lasted for nine years, and it was the number one show on their series, but it reached millions and millions of people, and, uh, you know, certainly the Japanese were not very happy about it.
0: Yeah, it's it's quite memorable. Uh, some of our listeners may be uh, too young to have seen it when it was fresh, but you can still f- find those, right?
1: And Japan was actually invited to, They, you know, their side of the story. They were invited to give their side of the story that they refused.
0: You've cultivated and enjoyed some really wonderful, deep associations with some really talented people along the way. Uh, but you also describe a lot of betrayal, folks who really betrayed you and stabbed you in the back. Uh, you just keep on moving forward. So, so how, do you, how do you do that?
1: Well, I, I've discovered something that uh, as an organization gets bigger... It tends to get uh, attract people whose um, primary concerns are not the cause. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fundraisers, lawyers, accountants, people like that. Yeah. And before you know it, um, it's not uncommon for the founders of organizations to be forced out of their own organization. Happened with David Brower with the, with the Sierra Club and Dave Foreman with Earth First and uh, Rick O'Berry with the Dolphin Project. Uh It's unfortunate. We spend too much time doing the activism and not much time watching our backs. (laughs)
0: We have been very curious to get your thoughts on offshore wind farms role in harming whales. Um, Do you think is the construction and operation of wind farms harming and killing whales? And if so, what would you like to see done?
1: It's absolutely killing whales, and that's why whales are dying on the eastern seaboard. It's not the actual windmills that are causing the problem. It's the construction of the windmills. That means the pile driving these gigantic support uh, beams, concrete and steel beams into the ground, creating decibel levels up to 200, uh, you know, 200 decibels. And um, that it, it ruptures the eardrums of marine mammals, uh, causes them to strand, and of course they can't navigate, but like that. Uh, it's been a difficult process because uh, going up against windmills is not exactly uh, a popular thing because people have been, uh, con- you know, convinced that, you know, we need uh, alternative energy and this is the way to go. And I don't have any problems putting windmills on land. But when they, they drive them in, uh, these piles into the ground, they're killing whales. They're killing other sea life, too. Now, there is an alternative. They could do gravity sink, which is giant concrete boxes that are filled with, you know, concrete and then sunk to the bottom, and they're stable. But that costs a lot more money. So they decided to take the cheaper thing, which is pile drive. Yeah. So they, they made a decision to kill whales in order to build win, to build windmills. And this is a problem all over the world. We're fighting it uh, in off the coast of France, off the, co- off the eastern seaboard, off Australia. Uh, and it's becoming more and more of a problem. We're basically going to cover the coastlines of most countries with, with these windmills and uh, cause a lot of damage in the process.
0: This discussion makes me uh, wonder about the U.S. Navy's activities. I haven't heard much about them recently, and they're a
1: sonar uh, harming
0: whales. Uh, what's going
1: on there? Well, what they use in testing, it's not just the U.S. Navy, it's other navies too, which is low-frequency sonar, which, again, has uh, ruptures the eardrums of marine mammals or of, of cetaceans. And uh, it's an ongoing problem. And for a long time, anytime the U.S. Navy was doing tests and then you uh Whales were washed up on nearby beaches. Nobody was allowed to touch them. But uh, a few years ago, uh, one was washed up in the Azores, and um, the U.S. had no authority there. And so, uh, biologists were able to get in there and determine that the cause of the death was uh, ruptured organs.
0: We're speaking with Captain Paul Watson, and after the break, we're going to learn about the Captain Paul Watson Foundation and a little bit more about current activities and how you can get uh, engaged and involved. You're listening to Animals Today.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat, but did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat, like onion and garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs, too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs do not eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking, so don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org.
0: Welcome back. We are continuing with Captain Paul Watson. Okay, so there is a relatively new organization, uh, the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. Please describe.
1: I set up the Captain Paul Watson Foundation to carry on the legacy that I had uh, you know, had created over the last 45 years. And the reason I named it after myself is that uh, the other two organizations that I co-created and created were taken away now it's pretty hard to take away an organization that's your own name so that was my reasoning uh to call you to, to use my own name for that uh, so we're now established uh in many countries germany spain italy australia new zealand uh sea shepherd uk became the captain paul watson foundation uk but we continue to work with uh, sea shepherd plants and sea shepherd brazil sea shepherd Hungary, that were loyal to that original cause um, so that, that, you know, that's the problem is that uh, I created a movement and I didn't, um, I wasn't very careful to see that people had other motives and that was, and four people who I had trained and put in the position that they were in over the last 20 years, they, uh, a year ago, they voted me off of the uh, global board without a meeting or a discussion and uh, I wasn't even allowed to vote and then a few months later they voted Lami and Lami the president of Sea Shepherd France off because she disagreed with their decision and also she was asking questions they didn't want to answer and one of those questions is why is Sea Shepherd Australia which is part of global why are they in an official partnership with Austral Fisheries Corporation and the Marua Daichiro Fisheries Corporation and in, now they're so called supporting sustainable fishing, but there is no sustainable fishing. And the reason behind this is that the CEO of Australia Fisheries got Australia, Sea Shepherd Australia, tax status in Australia. And uh, because he pulled strings with the Liberal Party there and got him the tax status. And in return, Sea Shepherd Australia is supporting so called sustainable fishing. And not just any fishery, but the toothfish fishery, which is an endangered species. Uh, and recently, um, you know, the Australian government expanded the marine preserve around Macquarie Island uh, National Park, uh, south of Australia. And uh, environmental groups, of course, were very much for that. But also fisheries led the campaign to oppose that. And Australia, the sea of Australia was noticed really silent about the whole thing. They didn't say a thing about it.
0: Did you say early you have one ship now and another on the way?
1: We do have one ship. It's the John Paul de which, uh, was purchased thanks to my longtime friend and supporter, John Paul de Joria. Yep. And, uh, he's, and we're looking at a second ship. And, uh, we also have, uh, uh, a uh, ship with Sea Shepherd France and two vessels with Sea Shepherd, uh, UK, which is now the Paul, Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And, uh, also a vessel, uh, that we're getting for the Amazon to protect the, the river dolphin. You know. So a lot of people came over with me, especially a lot of veteran crew members and supporters. And so, you know, at least we have a bit of a, a bit of an advantage uh, in starting up again, more so than I did in 77 when we started up. Yeah. So
0: there's this thing that you've called Neptune's Pirates. Who or what are they?
1: Well, uh, that's what we operated under. This summer we operated under Neptune's Navy, which is something I created back in 1985. But then uh, in the midst of the campaign, Sea Shepherd claimed that that was their, they had the rights to that name because I had was with Sea Shepherd when I created it. So I said, okay, well, let's just call it Neptune's Pirates, because I know that that's the one thing that they will not copy because they're deathly afraid of being called pirates. And, you know, the Jolly Roger flag that I designed, which they won't let me use, uh, they don't file it from their ships. They just use it on merchandise to so uh, the one thing I knew they couldn't uh, try and take over was the name Pirates. And I don't have any problem with it, really, because, you know, I'm actually a bona fide. Officially, I'm a pirate because the Ninth Circuit District Court of the United States, Judge Alexander Alex Kaczynski, back in 2014, uh, labeled me a pirate. He officially called me a pirate, didn't charge me with anything. But I do have, um, you know, the uh, a federal court. Officially calling me a pirate, so I think I'm probably the only official pirate on the planet today.
0: Speaking of which, are you able to freely travel internationally these days, or are there countries that you got to stay away from?
1: Well, in uh, in 2012, I was put on the Interpol red notice one first by Costa Rica for interfering with a shark finning operation off the Guatemala at the request of the Guatemalan government. In 2017, with a change of government in Costa Rica, that was dropped, and I'm no longer on Costa Rica's red notice. But Japan has me on there for conspiracy to trespass on a whaling ship. evil am but the Interpol red notice is for major drug traffickers, serial killers, and war criminals. I'm the only person in the history of Interpol to be on that list for trespassing, trespassing on a whale So I'm free to enter the U.S. I'm free to enter France and Ireland, but uh, any other country could detain me and extradite me to Japan because of that red notice. Uh, at some point, what I intend to do is uh, uh, go to Interpol's headquarters in Lyon and just confront them on the whole thing.
0: So for people who want to get engaged and learn more about the foundation and support you, what are the best ways to do it? How do they find you?
1: Uh, You can find us on the social networks uh, and also uh, the Captain Paul Watson Foundation website. And um, I also have my own Facebook, Twitter and everything under my name, Paul Watson, Uh, or, you know, see, or Captain Paul Watson Foundation UK, or just look up Captain Paul Watson Foundation or Paul Watson Foundation.
0: And so the book is Captain Paul Watson, Hitman for the Kindness Club, High Seas, Escapades, and Heroic Adventures of an Echo Activist, which you certainly are. Final question, Paul, why is it important to be kind, even in a pretty tough business you operate in?
1: Well, well my mother taught me that we have to be, uh, be kind to animals. And, uh, you know, it was a lesson that was instilled into me and also reinforced by Ida Fleming with the Kindness Club and everything. We have to be able to live On this planet in harmony with all other species you know we have to get rid of this idea that we're dominant that we're superior that we're better than all other species so uh, you know we have to learn to live in harmony i also set up the church of biocentrism uh it's not really a church it's more of a science-based thing but what it's trying to promote is that we have to have a biocentric point of view instead of an anthropocentric view all the major world religions are based on uh uh, that we're the center of everything. Everything was created for us. We're better than every, everything. So BioCentrum is more based on indigenous uh, people's understanding that we're interdependent with all other species that, uh, that we're not more important than any of them. In fact, many species are far more important than we are. A few years ago, I got a call from uh, Brett Hume of Fox Network, and he said, did you say at a lecture that uh, bees, trees, worms, and whales are more important than people? And I said, yeah, I think I did say that. And he said, well, that's outrageous. How could you say something so outrageous? And I said, well, because they're more important than people, because a uh, very simple reason. They can live here without us, but we can't live here without them. We don't live in a world without bees, trees, whales, and fish. And uh, so th- that's a hard thing to get across to the anthropocentric mind that, uh, you know, just how important all these other species are. And we don't live on this planet by ourselves. I always like to look at it this way. If you look at the Earth as a spaceship, which is what it is, on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way. And every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system gives us everything that we need. Uh, You know, it regulates climate and temperature, provides uh, food, and, uh, and also gives us the air that we breathe. And that life support system is run by a crew, a crew of engineers that keep it all running, keeping that machinery going. We humans, we're not crew members, we're not engineers, we're passengers, and we're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is we're murdering the crew. We're killing off the crew. And there's only so many crew members, so many engineers you can feel before that machinery begins to fall apart. And uh, and when it does, we go with it, too, because we're just the passengers and we go down with the ship.
0: Captain Paul Watson, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you. You know, 2020, the crazy year that it was, uh, many of us are doing new experiences, uh, eating foods online that we've never ordered before, having to provide care for our children and our pets in new novel ways. One of the things we had to do was to figure out how to groom one of our cats. Elton's a long hair, beautiful boy. And, uh, He does shed, but that was not the issue. What we found is that he's much more uh, comfortable when he has a short coat. And uh, so we let it grow for six, 12 months and usually have the mobile groomer come to the house and shuttle him out there. And then, you know, 30 minutes later, he's a happy, short-haired cat. And it also, of course, uh, gets rid of the mats, which can be a problem and inevitably come even you know, no matter what we do. So here we are as the, uh, summer goes by and mobile groomer is not working. And it seems that maybe we'll try doing it ourselves. So we watched some videos and watch some reviews of products. Basically you need a electric clipper and a helper or cooperative cat and some uh, patients. And, uh, it was a little scary, I have to say, but we got a clipper. It seemed to be working. More. It's a battery-operated, uh, moderate, sort of in moderately industrial-looking. Uh, so fortunately, Elton was uh, surprisingly a cooperative. Uh, Lori was there working with me. I ended up doing initially most of the handling of the device, and she was keeping him nice and calm, although uh, later she... Uh, took the clipper and got pretty good at it and uh so the device it's got uh you know regular hair fur clippers and it's got these guards to protect you from going too close to the skin and you have to get sort of used to working with them and to knowing how much they protect you versus allowing you to really cut what you want and then what we found is really taking our time and not turning it on and off. Suddenly the on and off sound was a, a little annoying. And then gradually, gradually uh, doing a section at a time and taking it real slow and easy. It's slow, and it does cause a lot of hair to get flown in the air. So we were both wearing masks, which was helpful. The other thing we found is that getting through some of the mats was really a challenge. This was, I think, meeting the limits of our uh, device's and we sort of had to nibble at the mat rather than just sort of slicing through it um, like you would like to that took a while to learn a technique that that would work but you could sort of scrape and nibble at it and that' sort of worked it takes a while uh, danger areas you know around the bottom you got to be real gentle and some areas we just you know couldn't do quite as well as we wanted but when we were done uh, we had well it was sort of not a nice, smooth, even cut, right? It was a little jaggedy and a little ratty, but it was short and very uh, manageable, and Elton was uh, much happier. And uh, I have to say, it was a little achievement. We both felt a little sense of achievement that we were able to learn how to do this sort of specialized skill. Uh, you never know how your cat's going to react, and then we'd get so nervous, we thought we would you know, convey that to him, and he would just hide, and that would be the end of it. But we worked through it. It took a couple of sessions over two or three days to do it in- initially, and uh, that's one of our achievements from 2020. We're proud of that one.
2: You're right, Peter. It was scary. I just was worried we were going to cut him or or emotionally scar him or frighten him. Yeah. Yeah, but he, he likes it and he was a good boy. He's really good. It's a good boy Didn't try to bite us didn't try to scratch us. He really was a yeah. good boy. No blood Welcome back to animals today We're gonna talk about famous dogs in Hollywood history. Peter, who would you say is not only one of the most famous canine movie stars in history, but the most famous and recognized German Shepherd dog of all time?
0: Oh, the German shepherd part helps. That's Rin
2: Tin, Tin right? That's right. During his life, Rin Tin, Tin appeared in 27 Hollywood films, including one called The Man from Hell's River, that was in 1922, Frozen River in 1929, and The Lightning Warrior in 1931. Now, you're going to find Rin Tin Tin's personal story very interesting. He was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier, Lee Duncan, who nicknamed him Rinty. Apparently, he was the only one who ended up surviving from a bombed out dog kennel in France during the war. Now according to a rumor, Rin Tin Tin received more votes in the first year of the Oscars than any other actor. That's funny. But the Academy gave the award to a human to avoid being embarrassed. Warner Brothers referred to Rin Tin Tin as the mortgage lifter and fully understood their success was because of this German Shepherd dog. And this dog was one of the reasons why German Shepherds became so popular as family pets in the United States at that time. Now, after Rin Tin, Tin died in 1932, many dogs after him went on to take Rin Tin Tin's name and try to continue his legacy in films, television, and books. So the Rin Tin, Tin used for the 1950s television series The Adventures of Rin Tin, Tin was not the original Rin Tin, Tin. Another iconic Hollywood canine You know Toto in The Wizard of Oz, but I bet you don't know Toto's real name.
0: No, I don't.
2: Terry. Terry. Terry was a Karen Terrier. She was born in the midst of the Great Depression. Although Wizard of Oz, which was in 1939, was Terry's most famous role, she actually starred in 16 different movies in her lifetime. She also appeared alongside Shirley Temple in Bright Eyes as the character named Rags, that was in 1934, which was considered her first major film appearance. Reportedly, Terry did all her own stunts and almost lost her life during the filming of The Wizard of Oz. And this story, one of the Winky Guards, remember them? They're the Wicked Witch of the West's foot soldiers from the Wizard of Oz. Okay, I remember. One of the Winky Guards accidentally stepped on Toto's foot, breaking it. Toto spent two weeks recuperating at Judy Garland's residence. Garland developed a very close attachment to Toto and wanted to adopt Toto. But the owner and trainer of Toto, Carl Spitz, refused to give her to Judy Garland. Terry, Toto, died at age 11 in Hollywood in 1945 and was buried at Spitz's Ranch in Studio City, Los Angeles. The grave was destroyed during the construction of the Ventura Freeway in 1958. But in 2011, a memorial was created for her at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Nice. Next, who's the most famous Collie in Hollywood? That would be Lassie. Very good. A true American icon, right? You know Lassie's real name? Pal. Pal starred in seven different Lassie films and portrayed Lassie in the two pilot episodes of the television series before he had to retire in 1954. Pal was the first of many to portray Lassie and was father to the dogs that would continue to portray Lassie later in the television series. The Saturday Evening Post was quoted as saying that Pal had the most spectacular canine career in film history. Peter, you're old enough to remember the movie Benji. Uh, Yeah, another little dog. Yep. He was a mixed breed terrier. Benji's real name was? Uh, Benjamin. Higgins. Higgins. Good guess. In 1960, animal trainer Frank Inn found the dog at the Burbank Animal Shelter as a puppy. In the movie, Benji is a stray dog looking for a home and when two kids are kidnapped, Benji helps bring the children back to safety. Higgins' a dog trainer considered this canine film star to be the smartest dog he had ever worked with because he was able to train Higgins to convey a multitude of emotions through facial expressions only. Higgins played in films during the 1960s and 70s, but most famous for his role in the movie Benji. And he played in six of the seven seasons of the TV sitcom Petticoat Junction, remember that oh, one? That now that's a connection I <laughs> never made. Petticoat Junction. He also had a guest appearance on the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. Oh, that's
0: good. He's got the whole trifecta of that little <laughs> genre there. That's right? good.
2: Boy, we're really aging ourselves. Do you remember watching those shows?
0: Vaguely, it was a long time ago. I was alive though.
2: Green
0: Acres. <laughs> yeah, I know Green Acres. City, city life. You are my wife. <laughs> Goodbye,
2: City Life.
0: <laughs> <Was that> funny, <laughs> okay. see, you're old enough too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
2: Enough singing. But listen to this. When he played in the movie Benji, Higgins was 14 years old. Oh, boy. Higgins died at age 17 in 1975. A couple famous chihuahuas. Yeah, Taco Bell. Very good. What was his name? Gidget. Oh, yeah. Was an advertising figure and mascot for the Taco Bell restaurant chain from September 1997 to July 2000. Gidget also appeared on a commercial for Geico.
0: Uh, before the gecko, maybe. That's right.
2: The other famous chihuahua, you want to guess?
0: Oh, no. You Help. know this one. I do? Uh, there's a chihuahua. Go a ahead. chihuahua
2: named Bruiser. Oh,
0: yeah. Who fr- played
2: Elwood's faithful companion in the Legally Blonde movies.
0: Yeah, I remember Bruiser.
2: Bruiser's real name was Mooney. Elwood <laughs> dressed Bruiser up in pink. Do you think Bruiser minded that?
0: Bruiser could pull it off.
2: By the way, going back to Gidget, Gidget played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. Wow, the Taco Bell Gidget? What? Yeah, oh, played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. I forgot there were multiple Chihuahuas <laughs> in Legally Blonde. These two Chihuahuas, Mooney and Gidget, lived together. Mooney died March 2016 in Los Angeles at the age of 18. Gidget was euthanized at the age of 15 after suffering from a stroke at her owner's home.
0: You know, it's better to have animals and cartoons as a spokesperson figures these days. I agree. Because, you know, the people, they tend to get in trouble. They get arrested. There's scandals. Your whole campaign is ruined. So you want to invent something or just
2: get a, get a dog. That's a great point. How about the famous pit bull with the circle around one eye? Yep. Petey from our gang, Little Rascals. Very good. That was during the 1930s. Now, the original Petey, his name was Pal the Wonder Dog and was an American Pit Bull Terrier. And he had a natural ring almost completely around the right eye. And dye was used to complete the circle. Now, on Wikipedia, you can see a great famous picture of the dog, Petey the pup, sitting in between two of the characters. One was the boy who played Stymie and the other boy, Wheezy. Do you remember those characters? Yes. This was in the R. Gang Comedy School's Out, and the picture was dated 1930. When Pal the Wonder Dog died, his son named Pete took over the role. Producers decided to continue the tradition of drawing on the entire circle, a custom that would continue in every future remake of The Little Rascals. Nice. Remember Old Yeller? Not so much. Tell me about Old Yeller. Oh, I can't believe you don't remember Old Yeller. Spike was his name. He was a Yellow Lab mix and best known for his performance as Old Yeller in the 1957 Disney film Old Yeller. Spike was obtained as a puppy from the Van Nuys Animal Shelter in California. The movie Old Yeller tells the story of a stray dog and a young boy who sees potential in him. Gradually, he learns the love of a family and this dog is protecting them from all sorts of danger and risking his life for them time after time. Do you know how Old Yeller died in the movie? Yeah, I knew there was a sad part of Oh my God, it's the saddest scene in film history. (laughs) Old Yeller defends the family Against a rabid wolf. Oh. And during the fight, Old Yeller is bitten and injured by the wolf. And because of Old Yeller's exposure to rabies, the older son is forced to shoot That's and right. kill That's Old, Ye- Old Yeller. Uh. You don't remember that scene? I I can't believe my parents allowed me to watch that movie. My parents
0: loved me. did not allow me to see it. Well,
2: maybe that's why I turned out the way I am. I'm going to stop here because thinking about what happened to Old Yeller is making me too sad. Okay, Lori. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.